Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm thrilled to be joined by Stephen New, co-founder of Bluewell Capital and lead manager of the Bluewell Growth Fund. Stephen co-founded Blue Whale Capital in 2017, along with Peter Hargreaves, co-founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne, where Stephen started his career back in the early 2000s. Stephen's fund has had striking success over the past four years. It's grown to over 780 million in assets and has delivered annualised returns of 17.9% since inception, according to the Blue Whale website. The fund is very concentrated with just 28 holdings, aiming to buy quality companies at an attractive price. Stephen, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mary. Now, I said you buy quality companies, but on your website, you say you buy beautiful companies. Just wondering what, what a beautiful company is um, and does your approach differ from what might more conventionally be thought of as a quality growth investing style? Yeah, I think this is a very good uh, starting point to open the floor. At Bluewell, we invest into the ultra high quality businesses. And I think if you speak to different managers, people talk about quality, good management team, high return on investor capital, competitive positioning. I think we are no different. But in terms of how high we set the bar, we're just a bit higher. So the subset of the market that we are really interested in is quite small. We cover about 100 companies at any one point in time. In We invest into the best of 25 to 35 names. And I think ultimately, you if you really like look at the top 10 holdings, which would be on our fact sheet or website, that you will see that the quality that this company offer are kind of true quality. They are able to deliver uh, earnings growth irrespective of what macro environment or uncertainties that we might experience. The management team has been exceptional in terms of the track record that they've delivered over the many years they've been running the company. And and then we do track them in terms of how well they deliver the target over the next coming years. And then last but not least, in terms of competitive positioning, it's about whether they can have pricing power, uh, launch new products, expand into no, new geographies, and then at the same time, not doing it with that, but building uh, building presence through organic uh, gr- uh, kind of drivers or, or cash flow, then they, they are the true quality company. So we, we kind of coined the term beautiful companies because they are just too good to be true. So you said you cover 100 companies, but it's also a global mandate. Can you briefly talk through what your screening process is to arrive at this shortlist of 100 companies? Yep. So to start off with, uh, we are bottom-up investors, so we do not do any quantitative screening. So everything that we do is from a qualitative perspective. And the way that we do it is, I think the starting point is to filter out companies that we've, we deem as pretty low quality, uh, whether it's because of transparency issue like banks, like we, we will never invest in banks, or highly cyclical companies such as oil and gas or mining, which I think recently they've been doing quite well, but then they do go through ups and down quite dramatically. We look at the history of those companies. And then last but not least, I think that many companies in the market now, they are deemed as quite low quality from our perspective. So even though the shares could have a bit of ups and downs, but then structurally, we don't see any prospect from those companies. So I think once you've gone through that exercise, the number of companies that we ended up that we define as super high quality are quite a small subset of the market. And they would typically be in the um, in the uh, consumer staple space, luxury names, medical equipment companies, and then some technology names. Yeah, it does. Looking at your top 10, it definitely looks like it's quite concentrated in US um, 
tech names and the the funds had very good performance it's underperformed um its benchmark index a little bit over over the last year but it looks like performance has picked up more recently do you worry about um having too much of a us tech focus perhaps in in the event of an extended market rotation yep so i i want to share two pointers which is not uh, apparent uh, if you refer to our fact sheet on our website so basically uh, if you look at the geographic split on our website it's done by listing so you will see that it's about 70% uh, invested into american company listed in the us but what we do uh, when we invest the money or assess the company that we have in the fund is we go through the underlying revenue exposure of our companies so if you do it by where they are actually generating revenue where they are making money we have less than 50% exposure to the us economy and then and then we do have about uh, 20% in asia pacific and rest of the world or emerging market which you don't see it uh, in terms of company but we can we can touch on that later but then i think the other thing which is more more interesting to discuss is the way that we define technology is a bit different to GICS so i think if you look at the website that is done by GICS and i, th- I think there are a couple of things that we disagree with that firstly uh, under GICS mastercard and visa would be considered as technology company but then to us they would be they should be considered as financial services because i mean they are really kind of the the, the rail to facilitate payments through banks and consumer like us etc so they while they are quite heavily invested in technology but they are actually financial services company and then the other thing is if you look at adobe which is one of my favorite holdings since we started the fund being a top 10 holding in the fund that while on the high level is a software company technology company but if you look at the underlying exposure of adobe would be all creative professionals media industry digital advertising and so to us the under true exposure of adobe is actually um uh, media and entertainment rather than just technology on the high level so basically i think if you do all the, do do this exercise across all the holdings that we have i mean we probably would have only like maybe less than a quarter of the fund in technology names which would include the likes of microsoft and a few other names but a lot of other stuff is probably is quite kind of the area that we, we we think they're not technology but they are really superb company that can take advantage of those industries i want to ask some specific questions about companies later but before we do that on your process the your fund has a strict valuation discipline um and given strong performance i wonder how much turnover uh, this valuation discipline has pushed the fund into and can you give examples of when you've trimmed or sold holdings based on their valuations uh yes so just to remind our audience today that the the in the objective of the, the internal objective of the fund is to deliver significant outperformance relative to the market so that is something that we do care about uh, a lot so the the two parts of the equation one is you invest into really high quality businesses but then equally is also very important that you want to invest in those companies and continue to hold on to those companies when the valuation remain attractive 
And as we all know, the market could at times become over optimistic about the prospect of a company. And hence, you will see that the share price of those companies would be a bit detached from the fundamentals that it deliver. So I think that's something that we do monitor quite closely. But if you just look at our top 10 holdings that you would see most of the holdings that we have in the top 10 we have been they have been in the fund since we started the fund so so i think that's just interesting to note and and we don't we try to be as much of a buy and hold investor as possible while as as, as far as valuation permits so under normal market conditions you would expect about a quarter of the fund could be different due to new ideas uh, the valuation of those holding become less attractive that we see opportunities elsewhere, etc. And I, I know that we will talk about other companies later, but if I just outline one recent example was that we, we sold out of a luxury company, Montclair, and then we, we invested those proceeds into Caring, which is the parent company of Gucci on better valuation, more interesting prospect. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And and if you just look at this holding, they, I, I think on a really high level, they do give us similar exposure in terms of how people perceive luxury, how uh, how they're exposed to Asia, the emerging market consumer, the rising power of those audience. And but then if we can find something that are that is trading at a more attractive valuation, then yeah, we would rather to have caring rather than Montclair being a bit more expensive now in the fund. Makes sense. Just on the topic of valuations, how do you feel about the valuations of the holdings in the fund generally? Um, I read a note from Credit Suisse recently saying that they feel there's a lot of complacency in markets at the moment. Do you feel that way? And what does the prospect of resurgent inflation and perhaps more importantly, rising interest rates, what, what might that mean for the fund? Yeah, it's a very big topic here. The I, I think just maybe to maybe touch on a few points uh, one by one here. I think on a high level, I would agree with you that the I think in if you just look at the market as a whole, there are many segment of the market that we deem as overvalue or we don't feel that those share price should be trading at that level. I mean, just maybe look at the names of like AMC or GameStop, what happened with those companies. To us, I mean, they are super low quality businesses. They shouldn't be around. They are highly indebted. There's not much of future or prospect for them. But then if you look at the share price performance, has been quite detached from fundamentals. So maybe a one term to, uh, I mean, maybe we can term that as like some sort of bubble in those shares uh, to start with. And that's definitely been driven by low interest rate and quantitative easing. But then if we look at the holdings that we have in the fund, which is only about 30 names in the fund, we don't feel that there's any of kind of bubble or, or maybe overvaluation or in our company. And I think that explains why the fund has not done that well over the last six to nine months. And just because that the market has become more excited about other names that we feel are quite low quality. But I think one thing that we do look at is how how uh, the fundamentals of our company develop over time. And then we feel that the company, the fundamentals of our company have actually strengthened over the last six to nine months while the share price has been a bit muted. So you have the share price going sideways for a bit of time, but then the fundamentals has been trending upwards. In contrast to what we see in the rest of the market, the fundamentals is kind of improving, but then I think the share price has probably overrun 
a bit detached from fundamentals. So I think that is something that we would definitely stay away from. To answer your question about reflation, inflation, or maybe interest rate rising, I think the big danger, I think that two two parts to this. I think one is it depends on how high interest rate is going to go. Let's say if the interest rate is going to go back up to about 2%, which is about similar level uh, versus before the pandemic, I think is manageable. If the interest rate would go up over time to 4 to 5%, I think that is a very different debate. I think equity market would suffer on the back of that. And also it depends on the time horizon that this would happen. But parking this out, what typically happen is for companies that are quite low quality and they are very expensive or maybe they're trading in a bubbly territory, a higher level of interest rate of or, or a lack of QE in the market would definitely have a reset of expectation on what those shares would be worth. So I think investors who have been probably trading those shares should be a bit careful if you are buying something that are quite expensive and overvalued but to us i mean the the stocks in the fund are pretty reasonably priced and we we still and and some of the stocks that we have in the fund that we actually see valuation being very attractive so we we i think we would be okay when the when the interest rate goes up that makes sense thank you how do you um how do you value companies that's that's another so it's another big question but are there what key metrics do you look for when you're valuing so i i I think if you you want me to summarize as in one most important metric for a company whether it's a good company or a bad company would be the free cash flow that this company can and deliver irrespective of macro uncertainties time after time and do it in a consistent manner and and ultimately if you look at a company then you do want to make sure that they are not highly indebted because you want that the cash that been built up, either they reinvest those cash back to the business at a high return on investor capital, or they might be returning those cash to shareholder. So I think the opposite of that would be that if you have a high, highly capital intensive business that you need to invest a lot of money in capital equipment, you are highly indebted, you are not growing, and 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 typically those kind of company would be deem as low quality at the same time i think if you look at evaluation which is using free cash flow adjusted for debt uh with the uh, market cap of the company then those companies would would not be looking very attractive over the medium term has your the process and what you're looking for has it changed at all over the course of the fund over the course of the fund's lifespan the investment philosophy has not change. It remained the same, which is to invest into high quality businesses at an attractive price, which is valuation. The But the implementation or the investment process have evolved over time. So what I meant by that is I think the more, for example, the more we cover a company, the more we learned about the, the company in terms of the drivers, the dynamics, the the better the assumptions that we can put behind the financial model that we built for that company in itself and make more sensible forecasts over the medium term. And also, I think the other thing, COVID is one of those things that has never happened before. And and I think with, with, with some of the company that we would think that they are actually going to do quite well on the back of some, some macro uncertainties. But I think they have actually some of the the companies that we have actually have done significantly better on the back of COVID. So they actually are the net beneficiary from COVID versus not a 
versus just a normal recession environment. I think so those kind of stuff would fit into how we how we assess the company going forward. So the investment philosophy is the same that we want high quality businesses. But I think as time evolve, as different macro uncertainties evolve, then you learn a, a lot more about those companies. And next time when you look at the company again, you wouldn't be just saying, oh, what happened to them? In 2008, during the financial crisis, you will be asking what happened when they experienced COVID. Like, is that going to destroy some of the um, the capital they invest into? Is their business model scalable that they can take it online rather than just rely on the high street, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a lot of learning on an ongoing basis, but the investment philosophy has not changed. Um, now, you said earlier that the funds got quite a lot of exposure to the Asian economies, although a lot of it's listed in the US. But um, it does have a concentration of US listed companies. And this puts it in an interesting contrast to Scottish Mortgage, which is a big, which would be a rival of yours in the global space, um, which is increasingly turning to China in search of innovative companies. Um, And they sort of say that they're losing faith in some of the major US tech names. Uh, do Do you think you'll be looking um more east over time yeah i I think the short answer is no and so just to recap slightly um in term when when we talk about the investable universe that we have is quite a small subset of the market and the reason being so the reason that we are not in asia emerging market in on a on a large scale is because the corporate governance is pretty low. So let's say if you're going to look into some sort of Asian company or Chinese technology company like Alibaba or Tencent, that you are trading off the quality for opportunities. And when we say opportunities, it means that it typically means we, we require that the valuation of those companies to be trading at a significant discount to let's say the developed market counterparts, right? Because if they're trading in a similar kind of valuation and then you're buying something lower quality and you don't have the transparency of what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, I think is quite difficult. And and to us, I think that is definitely not a reason. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't fit how we, how we uh, invest. And, and the other thing just to, I mean, I can't speak for a Scottish mortgage. I mean, they, it's a very good fund. The strategy has worked over the years. But I think one thing just to differentiate ourselves is we run a high conviction portfolio or highly concentrated portfolio between 25 to 35 stocks. And I think if you look at SMT portfolio, they would have about maybe 100 names. So typically, I think if you go into some of these more exciting market or emerging markets that you can't really have high conviction because you never know what's going to happen. So you would end up taking smaller position, but with more names in the fund, but which is not what we what we set out to do. So I think as far as the strategy of this fund is concerned, we will remain focused in highly liquid and uh, developed markets focus. But hopefully we will be able to find companies that would have underlying exposure to Asia and emerging markets. Yeah, I saw Financial Express had um, likened you more to Fundsmith Equity. It does seem a more similar approach of a high conviction portfolio. Anyway, before we move on to talking about individual companies could you just um let us know what holdings you've been adding to and scaling back recently and and why 
Yeah, so I, I, I just talk about uh, caring versus Montclair. Yeah. I mean, that, that was just on the back of valuation. We, we do cover the luxury names. We, we do like the trends there. I think we sold out of two holdings uh, in Q1 this year, which, uh, which include uh, Unilever and Boston Scientific. So just maybe a short, short one on Unilever. We do cover consumer staples, but then given the environment that we are in, we do we actually see better opportunity within the fund itself, just referring to the underperformance of some of the stocks that we have. And I think as far as Unilever is concerned, that it does typically doesn't, I mean, it's quite kind of like a steady company that it, it, it's good quality, but in terms of opportunity, they can actually capture on the back of COVID or maybe when we are going to reopen the economy, it's probably less. So it's on a relative basis that we feel that we have better opportunity elsewhere. I think Boston Scientific, we I've spoken about this quite a bit in the past that we do cover the medical equipment company, but it's a bit specific to Boston Scientific that they they have some execution issues as far as the management team is concerned, as far as we are concerned about the management team. And to us, we feel that we have given them enough time to 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 resolve the, those issues. And what we don't want to do is to sit with them for another couple of years while we actually see better opportunities within the fund or outside of the fund. So we, we decided to exit the position and put it into something else. And Alphabet, so- a big holding that that everyone will know about. Um, to what extent is the company's future hinged on its other bets division, and to what extent do you think it rests with Google? Yeah, we. I mean, the way that we see it is we the, the valuation that we have put onto Google uh, using our numbers that we have not factored in any upside potential from other bets because it's still loss making. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of things like what, which one is going to work, which one is not going to be. I think as far as equity shareholders is concerned that what Google managed to do over the last few years was they, they disclosed, they increased disclosure on other bets or maybe the, I think the loss making part from the other bets has come down over time as well. So we, we don't actually think Google need sorry the valuation of google need to have the other bets to work to justify the valuation so i think that that is the short answer but i think if you really look at what they're doing on other bets it's quite interesting it's quite promising i think waymo would be one of those that they recently kind of spin out and and started to attract external capital i think that would be that potentially could be a success for google but at the moment, I think you, that, that there are enough moving parts within the main business of Google to justify the valuation. Okay, that's, that sounds reassuring. And in, in its attempts to make money from its other bets, do you think it should spin out the new ventures on their own or, or try to keep them and make profits from them themselves? I, I think it, it all depends on... on, on it, it all depends. I mean, from our perspective, we... We would rather they they spin it out, or they increase transparency of what's going on. Because at the moment, given that it's called other bats, there's many things that's going on within that, and they typically they try not to share too much for obvious reason, right? They don't want their competitor to know yeah. what they're working on. So so we understand. And but I think from an equity shareholder perspective, that we we would rather to have better transparency. So if they do spin it out, or maybe they they make it as like a subsidiary, which is maybe separately listed or something, then I think it would increase the uh, the value of the shares 
which then will benefit as a shareholders. But obviously, it's a choice of the management team. And and hence, if if you look at, I mean, when we define quality of, let's say, Google versus Microsoft, then we would deem Microsoft being a high quality business versus Google, just because the transparency and disclosure is a bit lacking versus, let's say, Microsoft. Yeah. Just on the other best thing. So you mentioned Waymo earlier, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, a self-driving car project. Um, can you tell us about any of the other ones and, and what they're doing? I, I, I can't, unfortunately. I think there are a couple. Like, we don't spend too much time on it. I mean, they yeah. do have they do have a few different ones. But then I think typically, if you really look into that, the probability of whether some of this stuff is going to be successful is probably quite low. <laughs> but but if they do make one successful, let's say Waymo, which looks to be promising, then then yeah, it could it, it could change the whole game. But there would be a lot of loss making businesses that some of them they started maybe maybe ten years ago or five years ago and then they stopped talking about it and, and they probably disappear already. <laughs> so so that is that is definitely not the part that we like about Google. So if you ask us, oh yeah. can we do I mean firstly do we invest in Google on the back of other bats? The answer is no. Would we prefer to invest in Google without the other bats division? I think the answer is yes. But then I think that's a trade-off that if we can find we can invest in Google and attractive valuation without factoring in other bats. Which is now, then, then we we think is okay. Do you have any concerns about the regulatory situation, though? Sorry, just last question on Google. How how much are they relying on favourable regulatory environment? Yeah, I I think I I would try to answer this question in two parts. I I think on a high level that we welcome increase in regulation for technology company, let's say big tech, and for most of the for most of these company the biggest threat to them is not regulation is actually the threat of new entrants or disruptors so if the re- regulation is quite relax and then you have more new entrants coming in to disrupt the business model of google facebook or amazon i think that is more of a concern to us so we generally welcome regulation because that, that would prevent new entrants coming into the market because it's just more difficult for them to get in to, to start up. I think Google is a tricky one because if you ask me about Amazon, it's quite easy that you can actually break, break them up into half. Let's say Amazon being two parts of the business. One is retailing, one is the Amazon cloud. If you break them up, I think it will worth a lot more to shareholders. If you look at Facebook, it's really two parts of the business. One is the Facebook page slash Instagram which would be digital advertising. And then the other part of the business is WhatsApp, which have over 2 billion users and they're, they're not making any money from it. So if they spin off WhatsApp, I think WhatsApp could be worth a few hundred million, sorry, a few hundred billion dollars, which would be benefit show to shareholders. I think Google, the difficulty with Google is they do have many things going on. I mean, you are talking about the Google search, which is the main business. They do have the Google Maps, which is kind of the same business, but it's slightly different. They do have the Android system, which power a lot of smartphone and even like some of the car system is powered by Android. They do have an app store. They do have the Google music. They do have YouTube. So, so I think the question is which part, how Google is going to be broken up. That is the question because there's so many things going on in Google and they seem all could be it appears to be independent but they are kind of interlinked as well like for example like just say oh 
is Google Search the same as Google Map? I mean, I doubt it's the same business, but then it will be powered by the same engine. Like people will be searching for a restaurant on Google Maps, something pops up, which would link to how people will search it under the Google Search box. So I think it's quite complex. And, and ultimately, I, I think the way that, uh, I, I think one comfort that we get as equity shareholder is the more Google disclose the different lines of business to to the market, the better the valuation it gets. So I think the exercise that's being done by the regulator is good for them uh, or good for us. And and I think Google have a lot, many levers to pull before it become a, a, a kind of a negative for the business. Um, Visa and MasterCard, you mentioned earlier, two, two holdings in your top 10. And I noticed that PayPal used to be in your top 10, but it's not anymore. Why is it fallen out? And why do you favor Visa and MasterCard? Yep. Uh, so we, we, we like the three company. I, I think they offer slightly different uh, kind of element to the portfolio. The, on, the only reason that PayPal is no longer is in the top 10 is on the back of valuation. It's less attractive compared to this time before. If you look at the share price performance of PayPal over the last year in 2020, it was up over 100%. So it's done very well. So we would rather not have a big position in, in PayPal. I think Mastercard and Visa is quite interesting because if you look at the share price performance of those companies, they have not done well. The share prices actually have been quite weak. The reason being is they are uh, quite exposed to cross-border transaction, which would be holidays, people going to Europe to use their credit card in restaurant or hotels, etc. And we are not allowed to do any of that for the last many months or even like in the coming months. So they have been suffering in terms of business, but at the same time that they are also benefiting from uh, kind of the transition from cash to contactness, from contactness to some of the digital parts. So in the US, I think we will be surprised sitting here in the UK that they have only issue con sorry, issue all contactless card to to consumer in the US by last year in 2020. But while we are sitting in the, here in the UK that we already have that for the last five to five to seven years. So so Visa being the incumbents in the US, they are going to benefit when the economy if we reopen, cash is probably dead and and more transaction via contactless, they're going to do well. So I think if you put two things together, they're not doing well on cross-border because there's no travel at the moment. But at the same time, they're also benefiting from other trends that would become structural. And then you marry the two together, look at the valuation of Mastercard and Visa, they are quite attractive. So we, we feel that we want to have a bigger position in those companies. Cash is dead. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, no, digital payments, certainly a growing area. But I've got a, a big question for you looking further out. So central bank digital currencies are being developed all around the world now. We've got China due to start um, hoping to roll out to, to foreigners next year. And indeed, cryptocurrencies has been a big trend. Do do these um, do central bank digital currencies or cryptocurrencies pose as a threat to the business models of these traditional payments companies, do you think? 
this is an ongoing uh, kind of uh, ongoing development. So we have done some work on the back of this. We don't think at the moment it's going to be a threat to the business model of Mastercard and Visa because they are working closely with the government, with the banks, or even with some crypto platform that you can, they will be able to issue a card branded like Visa or MasterCard that you can actually take money out uh, on the back of like a crypto wallet. So they are actually working quite closely together with some of some of these counterparts. I think the big question though is is how this crypto or or, or, or digital currency is going to develop in the next maybe 10 to 20 years. I think that is something that we have to monitor closely. I think one thing which is slightly interesting is I think a lot of people talk about Bitcoin, but I think to me or, or to us, I think the more interesting on the back of this is the blockchain technology or the crypto technology that is powering all this stuff. And I, I think we, we share the view that crypto, or the blockchain is at the early innings of something like the rise of the internet about 30 years ago now. And 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 some some people might remember or not remember that that people were talking about like Netscape, the browser, Internet Explorer, or even some other search engine that they have all disappeared before Google started a few years later. And I think Bitcoin could be one of those elements that everyone focus on Bitcoin now, thinking like this is the thing. But I think the technology in itself, which is blockchain, is a lot bigger. And it's all about how company can utilize that technology to power the business to the next stage, similar to Internet. Yeah, that leads me nicely into the next question that I wanted to ask, which is that you've got Adobe, Microsoft, Intuit, big star software companies. Um, they've been helped by the move to cloud. Uh, do you think the continued evolution of the Internet and increasingly the, the role of blockchain, as you said, will be as beneficial for these software companies? I think software companies is probably the mo one of the most beautiful business model a company can have. And I think using Adobe as an example, which they only reported the results a few days ago, is they are doing extremely well. Uh, the reason being is they are the uh, market leader in content creation software such as photoshop or video editing app and as more people spend time in front of the computer or mobile mobile phones that we are consuming ever more content via youtube via digital advertising etc etc so the more content that being generated whether it's through crypto technology or maybe some sort of like nft like selling different content etc i think adobe is at the hub of that and at the same time the business model in itself utilizing cloud uh, which is subscription that as soon as you stop paying adobe maybe the 20 pounds a month to 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 use the photoshop then if you stop doing that, then you can't, the software doesn't work for you anymore. So I think the business model in itself is very powerful, uh, being SaaS subscription cloud. I think blockchain or, or, or crypto on for, for the likes of software company, I think that is a bit of an unknown at the moment. I'm not sure how it's going to play out. I can't see direct uh, relationship in terms of how they're going to be impacted. I think the crypto bit would be more would be more for the digital payment companies such as PayPal, Mastercard, and Visa, which is which is really where the payment is going to be made. But I think some of these companies, they will be able to utilize uh, some of this technology themselves. There was one thing I thought was quite interesting. So you, you mentioned caring earlier, and you emphasize on your website the celebrity angle 
um, celebrities using their products. Why do you like this? And can it not be a risk too? You know, we've had slightly different, but we've had Ronaldo and Coca-Cola <laughs> recently. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's a difficult call, isn't it? Because because ultimately, I think if you look at any luxury, any any brands, whether it's luxury or just consumer brands, they always would have some sort of like VIP or or some sort of celebrity and, and endorsing the product and whatever. However, or whenever something happened to that uh, celebrity or the endorser, like it might have a short-term blip on the brand in itself, such as what you just mentioned. But I think over the, over the long term, if you look at the track record of how, how this company react to certain things, it doesn't really change the process of the company in all because ultimately it's all about the brands in itself. And I would, I would even suggest that the, if you really look into the underlying of some of this brand, it's all about the heritage. It's not even about the designer. I mean, does anyone know how many designer Kushi has got or LV has got? Like you, the designer in itself is important at, at a certain times, but then the, the value of those brands is, 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 has managed to transcend uh, like a single person who might be instrumental to a collection, to a certain design, etc. So the celebrity element, I think you can read it both ways. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but over the medium term, it, it shouldn't really have any... Uh, relationship with the value of the brand. Great. Well, we're running out of time, but one more question. There have been press reports of a smaller company's investment trust from Blue Whale. Can you can you tell us anything about this? Yeah, I I, I think I have been recently quoted on that. It's something that we have been asked a lot by retail investors, given that uh, I think investment trust is a vehicle for them to have daily liquidity, to trade all day uh, during the uh, London Stock Exchange hours, etc. I think that is something that we feel that we can do well, uh, given that our strategy can go into smaller companies, offering more uh, upside potential, etc., versus larger companies. I think the challenge being is not so much to do with whether we can do it from an investment perspective, is whether we can raise enough money to do it in a single day. Because I, as I outlined uh, before, that I mean we are we are just over eight hundred million now, but it took us about eighteen months at the beginning, about four years ago, to get to one hundred million. And 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 it does and and to launch an investment trust, you do need to raise about maybe two hundred to two hundred fifty million in a single day. I'm just not sure whether we have enough effort, appetite from people. I think a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm really interested," but they might not be giving you a lot of money. <laughs> and then if we can't raise enough money, then the investment trust would not be successful because the the cost of running an investment trust is more expensive. So I think when we're ready to do it, we would do it. At the moment, I think we are still building our present or maybe uh, kind of support from our audience or investors. And over time, I think it's something would be quite complementary to what we are already doing and offering something different. Uh, Interesting that you're going for the investment trust structure. Mm. I guess that's for liquidity reasons. Uh, yeah, liquid. I think I think liquidity uh, being uh, I, I think is important. To touch on that. So as far as the LF Blue Well Growth Fund is concerned, it's a flagship fund. It's daily NAV. It's highly liquid. We would remain in the large to mega cap end, so that everyone who invests in the fund can take their money out. We will never touch anything that's illiquid or small, etc. I think the point with the investment trust is we you do have permanent capital 
which while everyone can trade in and out, but then you, as far as the investment manager is concerned, whatever money that you have raised in the market, that's the money that we can play with. Then we don't need to worry about whether those money would be taken out from the investment manager. So I think, so hence, I think on the back of that, that we would be able to invest into maybe smaller company that we don't have to worry about people taking money out. Obviously, then you have the premium and discount on the trust in itself, which is something independent of what, what we do on a day-to-day basis. Brilliant. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time now, but that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity.